read the room guys it's like it's a bear market 63 million dollars in this market like come on guys like after after essentially telling like lps that they're getting screwed over and over and that we're just gonna create like a whole off-chain market for liquidity provision and to, and like the the users of your protocol are ultimately going to get uh, armed away through toxic flow like i don't know it's not a good look All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have a great analyst episode lined up for you today because as a reminder, we did change up the format a bit just to split out the analyst roundtable from the interview segment. Um, you know, the comments were saying that you guys were loving the analyst section and we love just talking about this space. So we figured why not bring some more content to the people. Definitely keep letting us know your thoughts on this. If you prefer it, if you hate it, let us know in the comments or the DMs. We'd love to get your take. Before we jump into the thick of today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, the Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including new work on their ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Today is September 29th, so we're recording this on the Friday. The episode goes out on the following Wednesday, so put down the pitchforks. If something we say gets a little bit stale, uh, we're just giving you our thoughts on the matter given the information currently available to us. I wish we could try time travel, but haven't figured that one out yet. Um, so today we're joined by Effort Capital and Westy to jam on the latest market happenings. But Sam, I'll throw things over to you to kick us off with a governance update. Absolutely. So just as a reminder, all of these updates go live in real time, practically into GovHub on BlockWorksResearch.com. And you can get 10% off of that subscription service using code 0xResearch10 at checkout. But uh, yeah, anyways, on the governance updates, this week we saw Uniswap Foundation, the independent nonprofit uh, for Uniswap, request $63 million worth of Uni tokens to fund uh, innovation around Uniswaps, likely in relation to hooks, 30% uh, for developers, 15% uh, for research, 10% for LPs and institutions to encourage uh, rooting trades through Uniswap, and 10% for governance engagement, which I found particularly interesting. Um, this proposal also looks to remove uh, the UF's need uh, to get a DAO approval for grants greater than $2 million, which was another interesting caveat. And I'm actually in for that, considering how difficult it is to get token holders to vote yes on large spends. Um, but I'm curious, do you guys have any thoughts on this proposal or is this a skip? Yeah, this, this was pretty interesting, I think, actually. Right. So uh, people were I don't know. It's funny. Whenever money goes from like the Dow to the foundation or vice versa, there's always controversy. How much money is going? How many people have control over this? Are token holders losing you know, voting power control of the pro protocol to a centralized group? Um, and that's long been a debate for Uniswap, especially given the fee switch argument, right? Should should the token holders, should the DAO accrue the value generated by the protocol? Um, and that's kind of what the core thesis of the, the kind of the debate going around here is, you know, we're giving more money, we're $63 million plus the first, uh, the first grant is over $100 million. And like, do you really need that much money? Uh, I don't know. Yes or no. So uh, some of the some of the flack they're catching is really just the size of the amount of money and the fact that, you know, the DAO is kind of yet again feels that they're losing control, still aren't earning any fees. Our token holders just continually going to be getting gypped here. Uh, it's kind of tough to know. And I guess there's like also this weird push and pull, or at least what appears to be a push and pull, I should say, between like 
Uniswap Labs equity holders and Uni token holders. Like, who's I don't know who's going to end up winning down that line, but it's really like people love to say that there's even a debate there. Uh, but you haven't seen any like concrete evidence, in my opinion, of the equity holders in Uniswap Labs being truly favored over the token holders. Like, just because the fee switch isn't on isn't enough, in my opinion. But I don't know if you guys feel differently. I'm pretty against some of this proposal. So, like, there's as of today, especially with Uniswap X and Uniswap V4 with a singleton contract, there's really no way for the uni token holders to accrue value at this point. Um, you would have to probably do it on a pool by pool basis. And even then, um, liquidity providers or, or pools can be forked uh, and you can kind of remove any fee switch that I think uni uh, token holders ultimately pass. So um, I, I think uni holders have really gotten the short end of the stick time and time again. Um, and I'm also pretty, I don't know the, exactly like what the accountability structure looks like between the DAO and, and UF, but the fact that they want to remove the need for DAO approval of grants, I'm in favor of that to a degree. Like you want, um, you want to allow like agile execution of subject matter experts in certain areas. So like most uni token holders are not going to be subject matter experts on how to allocate grant capital. Mm -hmm. So I'm in favor of the idea, but. Is it, hold on, is it, is it if it's, uh, so they're like, they have unanimous approval over grants of less than 2 million i believe it so it's greater than 2 million i think a part of the proposal basically is removing the need to go to the dow when the grant is above okay. 2 million dollars which i'm in favor of but i think the problem is like what is the accountability structure on the opposite side like what if the dow is not in favor of something that they out like what if there was actual misappropriation of funds does the dow actually have the ability to veto and uh pull back funds from uf at any point because if they don't i'm against this proposal but if they actually do have that where they have the ability to veto and uh, claw back funds from uf then like that's how it should be token holders should always have the right to veto remove a service provider or claw back funds um but they might not necessarily need the need to approve every single type of expenditure that a foundation or another committee um you know uh wants to allocate capital to I believe the funds get streamed to the UF on like a basis in which they're requested because I think they got funded with like 20 million uni tokens a little while ago, like about a year. Um, so I, I don't know exactly the structure. I'll be completely honest, but I am pretty sure there are safeguards in place to make sure that they're not just willy nilly spending money on nothing. They also just need to read the room. Read the room, guys. It's like it's a bear market. $63 million in this market. Like, come on, guys. Like after after essentially telling like LPs that they're getting screwed over and over and that we're just going to create like a whole off-chain market for liquidity provision and to, and like the, the users of your protocol are ultimately going to get uh, arbed away through toxic flow. Like, I don't know. It's not a good look. So I guess this goes to like, are you bullish or bearish DAOs in general? And like, what does the future of DAOs look like? Like you, you mentioned it earlier, like are, are, is the DAO as the token holders more capable of allocating grant capital to the correct party or, you know, or token holders? Or if you look at something like a, a lending protocol, like who can better set risk parameters, a centralized entity that does this professionally or a DAO of token holders that are, you know, may or may not even vote on the proposal. It's, I don't know, it's hard not to be bearish DAOs in a lot of ways, but I think we just really need to see the evolution of DAOs continue. Bullish service providers. <laughs> That's the main takeaway here for me, at least. But, 
Uh, that vote actually goes live on October 10th too. So we got some time to mull it over, but moving on to, uh, the next one in the governance update, we have the Arbitrum grants program. Uh, the short term incentives program is what they're calling it. STIP. I actually really like that name. It flows off the tongue. Well, but they received over a hundred applications. Um, it's actually pretty crazy. Uh, most of the, uh, the requests are coming from the perp sector with GMX with 14 million mux for nine GNS with seven vertex with four and a half. Uh, it's by far and away the largest category. Um, not sure how I feel about that, to be honest, but would love to get your guys' thoughts on the overall process and how you guys feel about uh, their short-term incentives program. Definitely think there's a lot to be learned from a process standpoint. I mean, there was 105, I think, was the final count of, of applications that came through the door. That is an absolute nightmare for token holders and delegates have to go through. So, you know, thankful to the couple people at BlockWorks Research that spent uh, quite a lot of time aggregating these into like one Excel sheet uh, and giving, again, those those voting parties the ability to at least have like a, a quick overview of what's going on. But the reality is like a quick overview is not enough. You Like this is because there was no framework on like, here's how you can use the incentives uh, now request the number. It's like it's not as simple as just looking at a high level number and deeming whether or not this is like the protocol that requested that, that number of ARB is worthy of receiving it. Like you have to actually tear into the mechanism they plan on using and like, does this make sense? Are they just paying users to use their protocol? Or are they kind of doing something a little more complex that has a bit more staying power and stickiness of the user that doesn't just immediately create ARB cell pressure? And I mean, what a nightmare. Like again, 105 proposals, you're not going to get the average person to do this. You're not even going to get the upper quartile of token holders and delegates to meaningfully go through these things. Uh, so again, this goes back to what I just said. Are you are you bearish or bullish DAOs in the long term? Like this is a full time job to go through these proposals, and that's kind of what freaks me out about DAO governance in a lot of ways. But Sam, you mentioned that uh, you know perps let, perps platforms led the way in the total grants requested, and the DEXs, uh, yield optimizers, lending protocols, and bridges kind of rounded out the top five there. Uh, and in total, the top five sectors that we just listed off accounted for 64% of the total applications and 77% of the total ARB requested. Um, so it's kind of like where the, the ARB is categorized in this, in this case. And quite honestly, like, I feel like the protocols in those sectors are probably the most beneficial to DeFi with the exception of liquid staking. I think that's, they're kind of a little underrepresented here. And if you really want to kind of take that next form of like ETH is money narrative, like it, it kind of is LST. So I was surprised that we only got, what was it? I think three liquid staking protocols coming in with Lido being the, the largest request there. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I pictured when I heard that there were over a hundred applications was like a multi-sig trying to go one by one through each of these applications and vote. Um, and not only uh, vote physically, but also you have to think, long and hard about which ones you're voting yes for, which ones you're voting no for. And so, yeah, I see a lot of parallels with uh, the Uniswap Foundation vote, where having a service provider whose job it is to allocate that capital, I think is just like way more efficient. And on top of the fact that, I mean, looking through these proposals, I see a lot of alpha um, between the different protocols. Like, I know Ramses is one that asked for, I think, like four times as much ARB than their market cap. And we saw it pump pretty quickly, despite the fact that, like, we don't know if it's actually going to pass or not. But, you know, people are definitely jumping at the gun to find which of these proposals, you know, gives a good amount of ARB and is going to drive activity uh, specifically. But then also reading it, you can also 
see some of these proposals that I think are just like not good and not actually like a good use of ARB. For example, like a lot of the bridges are just asking for ARB to basically pay for the gas fee of users that bridge to the chain. Like, I don't see how that actually helps in any way. Like, I don't think, you know, Synapse giving, you know, a little bit of ARB for someone to, to bridge over is going to significantly increase the flow of funds, right? And I think they're just better, you know, uses of that capital. And so, yeah, I mean, I've read through some of these, but definitely not all 105, but I'm definitely going to read through them and find where the alpha is. Also on that point, Westy, like, okay, I'm a user. I just bridged this ecosystem. You rebated me for the gas that it took to get there. Now I have a token I didn't ask for, and I still need ETH to pay transaction fees. What am I going to do with that token I didn't ask for? So it's like, all right, well, I don't know. And this, I, I know effort you, I know how you feel on this, so maybe I'll tee you up here. But do we do we need to be giving an incentive program in the heat of a bear market? No. And like, (laughs) no, Uh, yeah, I'll say like I do. Even though it's a pain in the ass, like a hundred and what, hundred and five proposals. I think you said something ridiculous. Um, I I think that doing this is actually pretty interesting because instead of creating like a framework saying here's how we're going to accept a grant or or here's how we're going to distribute capital across like these certain metrics, you're kind of creating like an open source, like innovative way of figuring out new ways to attract Arbitrum capital and, and unlock, I guess, like the Arbitrum uh, on-chain economy overall. So like, I kind of like the idea of having like almost no framework and like everyone throw a bunch of shit ideas at the wall and seeing like what sticks kind of thing. So and you probably should only need to do this one or two times because eventually you figure out like the right mode of, of how to allocate capital in the future. So um, it is a pain in the ass up front, but I kind of like it uh, to figure out like what works and what doesn't uh, for, for future like programs like this. But I think like, does Mux need $9 million? Does Gaines need $7 million? No. Like, do we need the, all these different perpetual future protocols? No. Almost all of them copied, like, the GMX model uh, initially. I'm not saying I'm in favor of the $14 million for GMX, but I could also see the point that's like, look, without GMX, Arbitrum really had nothing going for it. Uh, so many other protocols built on top of GMX's V1's initial model with the GLP vaults. Um, you can kind of see this as, like, a retroactive grant going to gmx for what they were able to do to jumpstart the arbitrum economy and you're kind of betting on the team like the, you shouldn't be betting on a product per se you should be betting on the team like a lot of vcs bet on the teams teams ultimately like a lot of times ideas don't work 99.9 percent of startups fail but if you believe in the team they iterate they um you know go into a different direction they ultimately find success and i think like the gmx team has shown time and time again that uh, whether or not you believe in the v2 model itself is like regardless of the point but gmx was a first mover advantage in this space everyone else almost ultimately like copied their model and maybe made some some very small design changes here and there um i would not be giving a, a bunch of capital to anyone else outside of gmx at least in the purpose of space uh on arbitrum specifically but that's my personal opinion i i will say like within the perp space i can understand why they're asking for so much capital when you look at the biggest competitors in synthetics and DYDX and the fact that they've been so successful recently is because of incentives, because of token incentives, right? Synthetics has been using a lot of OP rewards and will continue to do, to do so when that uh, program comes back up. And so like they kind of have to play the game in order to stay competitive, which is, is super annoying. And it's definitely somewhat a waste of capital, but at, at the same time, like you kind of have to play. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And like, and you look at you know GMX, Mux, GNS, Vertex, they all have like slightly different you know models. I, I, I hear your point about GMX being in that base layer that everyone kind of forked and iterated on. Um, so it's like it's hard to it's hard to like pick which ones like oh this you know pr- protocol A is more worthy than protocol B. Uh, if you're just like taking the right now moments of being like okay like you know this model maybe is more sustainable than the other one or something like it's, it's going to be really, really tough for delegates and, and token holders to come to decisions here on, on how they feel. And uh, I, I actually really liked your point. Something I hadn't considered uh, effort, which was, this is actually a great way to figure out which in, like the best way to incentivize activity in the most sticky way. I, I didn't think about that at all and just thought about the headache it was creating, but that's a 10 out of 10 point. I love that. Yeah, they also have like data and reporting requirements that they have to submit every like two weeks, I think, throughout the incentives period. So it's going to be super interesting to see the data that these protocols all publish onto the forum, the ones that actually win the allocations just to see like, are the incentives working? And then also looking at that same data, you know, months after the incentives end. Um, so I think we're going to learn a, 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 like a ton, to be honest. I, something I would like to see more of, though, would be like our loans, things that, you know, get loaned out, get more liquidity for ARB, um, and then maybe return to the Dow Treasury. And then the service provider who borrowed that ARB gets to make trading fees on that. Like, I think that's great. I'd also like to see like more uh, focus around who's actually generating revenue for the Dow. Obviously, that would be gas consumers, considering the revenue for L2s is going to be the delta between L2 fees paid and L1 settlement costs. So, I mean, Layer 0 and Stargate make up like 20% of gas, yet they're a very small portion um, of the the requested ARB. So I don't know. I think this is going to be a great learning experience, but I also think there'll be some failures from it as well. I'm really bullish on the idea of like liquidity as a service, lending out liquidity, not necessarily like handing it out. I think this is one thing that like uh, going to Curve, for example, like I think Curve, the, their vote escrow model, I think is right in the sense like you got to incentivize liquidity. But the problem is they're giving their liquidity away. Whereas like there, ha- I wish, you know, I think Rari, Rari tried to do this a little bit. It was obviously like a failed model. Um, Ohm does this to a certain degree, but I think like lending out your liquidity to jumpstart an economy, but not necessarily giving it out is probably the right way. Like I fully believe in the protocol and liquidity model. It just, again, there's such like a wide design space there that it just hasn't been figured out yet, but I'm very bullish on the concept in general. And I'm interested in seeing if somebody actually figures it out over the next like year or so. Yeah, Mux has actually done some interesting stuff with protocol and liquidity that I stumbled across the other day. I think that's pretty genius for a perps platform if you're thinking like really long-term time horizon. Another one I just want to shout out because I've seen people on CT talking about it is JonesDAO. I think they applied for a pretty hefty sum of ARB. I'm not sure exactly how much it is, but they just initiated a buyback program and that thing's up like two times over the last week alone. So maybe that's one worth worth, uh, looking into. I'll just add some, add the number there. Jones Dow requested a maximum of 3 million ARB. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. 
Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, But without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. This next one uh, is pretty exciting, in my opinion. The DYDX proposal for $20 million of incentives over a six-month period once V4 is deployed at current prices. That's only 10 million tokens, uh, assuming a $2 DYDX, which is only 1% of the supply and only like 17 to 20% of that is circulating uh, with the caveat that there are some large investor unlocks in December. Um, My takeaway from this, honestly, I think high float or sorry low float high ftv tokens got a lot of slack from the ftx alameda era but i do think there's a serious argument to be made for like really long vesting schedules really low float gradually increasing that float so the value of your incentives can go a lot longer like dydx's ftv is two billion dollars that is five ten x the next closest i think gmx is at 300 million like that and they don't have any dry powder of incentives which is why they need 14 million arb it's like dydx set themselves up in this position where they can now incentivize with just one percent of the supply and it's going to be 20 million dollars over six months and that's going to have a very meaningful impact so my biggest takeaway from this prop is just like don't hate or fade the you know the meme of you know low float high ftv coins i i think that's really not the as bad as people make it out to be well, to Westy's point, you got to play the game if you're a perps platform, and, and here we see it again. I don't know if I completely agree with you, Sam, that the low flow high FDV can be a good thing. I think you just need to sort of manage that ratio and that if it's too big, you almost have too much capital to use as incentives. And as you keep giving those out, it just drives the price down. And no one wants to hold a token that they know is going to continue to emit basically almost what feels like to infinity, like over many years. Um, so there's you have to strike a balance. But at the same time, I think you are correct in that having a portion of the supply used for incentives and figuring out which buttons you need to push to get sticky users, I think is a good thing and shouldn't be overlooked. But again, that you sort of have, have to strike a balance there. Yeah, my my one addition I would say there is I think with those longer term time horizons with the low float high FDV setup, like you need founders and investors to also have the same long term mindset. Like obviously you don't want 10% float and then all of a sudden 20% of investor and founders supply hit the market. That would be terrible. So I think the challenge there is just getting a team that actually wants to to build and not get paid for for a decade, honestly, because right now everyone starts vesting in one or two year cliffs. I'm so pumped for DYDX C4. I think it's going to be such a killer product, and I'm like really excited to see to actually mess around with it. Um, as I guess as a U.S. citizen, I'm, I guess I'm not allowed to say that, but uh, but I'm definitely going to be using that product. <laughs> I hope it's as good. And honestly, like an incentive program makes so much sense. Like. Going back to like the Arbitrum uh, grant program really briefly, like all that money, all that liquidity or all that uh, capital to be allocated to these DAOs mostly is going to become exit liquidity because Arbitrum doesn't really have like a sink. It doesn't have a supply sink for all that new supply comes onto the market. But like DYDX will. You're going to take those incentives. If people are smart, they should notice that DYDX is going to be a cash cow. You're going to be able to take those DYDX incentives, restake it back to the DYDX chain, and then get 
you know, additional in- issuance plus uh, trading revenue. So um, I'm really bullish on, on fee four. I, I hope it's as good of a product as I think it's going to be. And if not, then the app chain thesis is probably Ted, but um, I, I really hope that the DYDX team knocks it out of the park. You're going to be using it on testnet there. I fixed that for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I'd also agree with that. I think it's going to be a really cool experiment to yeah, see how they used cosmos, like, like look at how the order book is split up between validators and sort of see if they really are solving MEV in the way that they think. Like there's a lot of cool experiments going on that I am excited to see. And I'm also interested to see how it impacts the greater cosmos ecosystem. Because uh, like you said, like having a DYDX LST with a high yield of real yield and using that, you know, within DeFi areas elsewhere on Neutron, on Osmosis, et cetera, like it could spark what like a DeFi bull run within the cosmos if done correctly. And yeah, I'm just excited overall to see what impact it has. Inject Trouble. that shit into my veins, Westy. <laughs> Trouble for Adam though. <laughs> Trouble for Adam. I mean... Why would you ever hold ST Atom if you can hold ST DYDX? One's interchain money and one is just a there you go. In a, like the equity token of an app chain. Say right, well, your chest, Dan. All right. Well, if I, I can know. get paid out in stables <laughs> on a token LST, like I'm taking that any day of the week over. Effort. Talk about that uh that chart you cooked up for the osmosis thing. That's actually really, really cool. Uh the transaction fee. Yes. Market dominance or dominance. Yeah. So randomly, um, so I'm giving a talk at Cosmoverse. I know I said it a lot on, on a prior podcast, but I'm going to be talking about why, like, I believe Adam's money, even though it hasn't been forced on the rest of the interchain economy for like gas fees or what have you. But I was curious. I'm like, Osmosis accepts uh, essentially any token that traded on Osmosis can be used as gas payment. And then what Osmosis does in the background is it swaps it for Osmo and then uh, gives the Osmo to the Osmosis stakers. Um, and I was like, well, you know, let me just do a quick flip side query. What percentage of gas fees are actually being paid in Osmo versus other, other tokens? And what I realized is like over the past 25 to 30 days, approximately, um, there's been an, a drastic increase in number of transaction fees that have been paid in Atom. Um, so like Atom right now went from 1% of all transaction fees on Osmosis being paid in Atom to now it's like 14 to 15%. So there's been like an absolute parabolic usage of Atom as gas on, on the Osmosis chain, which I think is really interesting. Uh, especially when you kind of consider like Osmos is like the number one uh, app chain in the Cosmos ecosystem. And if Adam can like find proliferation as like the major gas payment token on that network, then it probably will see that naturally progress or proliferate throughout the rest of the interchain. Uh, But it was something I just like randomly wanted to check up on and be like, oh, like how's that doing? And it actually exceeded far exceeded my expectations. And everyone was, when I posted on Twitter um, yesterday, everyone was pretty shocked by that stat. So it got good amount of traction. So um, we'll see. Hopefully, Adam continues to kind of grow as as like the major dominant gas usage uh, or gas fee token on the network. It makes sense. More people hold Adam than almost any other token in the Cosmos ecosystem. So you would think it it would be be that. Um, but uh, yeah, I asked. I want to say it was Sam Hart and Ethan Buckman. I might be putting words in their mouth, but I asked someone in the Cosmos if they thought that would be like the end game for Adam as a token, um, and they were like, "No, like, that's the only thing that that really makes sense." So. I don't know. I just kind of put that thesis to bed after I was told that, but it's cool to see Osmos is gaining traction with Adam's transaction fees. And this is probably like a hot take, especially like I know I have, I guess I have a decent following in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, I think the Cosmos eco people, like the OGs, over index for sovereignty. They're like sovereignty is everything. 
That means like you got to pay and like these tokens that nobody wants to hold. That means like they, they took sovereignty to the nth degree. And I am much, I think I'm more like pragmatic. And I'm like, look, like so- to me, sovereignty means custom execution environment of your block space. You can do whatever you want with your block space. If your token holders want to use, uh, want to back run, want to front run their users, like token holders should be able to decide like how their block space is managed. That doesn't necessarily mean that I need to use your token for gas. That doesn't necessarily mean I need to like do everything by the book. Like I should be able to use Atom as gas or I should be able to use USDC as gas like anywhere I want essentially because it just makes good user experience sense. Um, and ultimately, we want to bring on new users to the Cosmos ecosystem. So I think historically, they've overnexed for sovereignty. Sovereignty, And I'm hoping like right now you start seeing like a coalesce uh, of the ecosystem around like one asset as at least like maybe not the only gas token, but as like the dominant uh, asset that everyone wants to see succeed. And then I think you're going to see wealth effects kind of grow, go out from there, kind of similar to what you saw with the Ethereum ecosystem. I, I see my thing with like, all right, I mean, Ethereum's kind of hard to use as a good example here just because it, you know, it had a meaningful first mover advantage for a smart contracting platform. But I, it's still hard for me to be like, look at everything that's happened and say the adoption of ETH as money throughout DeFi being the base pair for many of the largest pairs and being used as a medium of exchange throughout NFT markets. It's hard for me to like look at that and be like, oh, like because there was this one asset to rally around. That had nothing to do with the fact that it grew. Like I can't, I can't get to that point. And like, it's also hard for me to take the other side of that and be like, oh, that's the only reason why. Like, no, there's definitely multiple things at play here. Uh, but having an asset that's like deemed as money is a very like you get a monetary premium. You do. There's no way around it. That's part of the reason why a blockchain can be valuable, especially at the L1 level. Um, it gets a little weirder in app chains, but like for for the Cosmos hub specifically, like. Yes, I think it's important for that ecosystem to have that one form of money that it can rally around. Um, and I think that should be out of as well. I'm on the same page as you there. I think security and money go hand in hand. Like you can't have a good flourishing economy without like in the real world, without like good, strong borders, strong property rights, right? Like that ultimately leads like a flourishing economy uh, and hopefully using your native currency, like the US dollar, the euro or what have you. Uh, and I think like you're, I think you're starting to see a transition now from like the Cosmos Hub minimalism idea uh, allowed like strong security rights. The hub is the most secure chain in the Cosmos ecosystem, and now that can start renting out its security. I see that as like now there's strong digital property rights for chains that leverage Cosmos Hub security. Now that you have strong digital property rights, and you can actually build a really strong economy on top of the hub security, and it makes sense that the Atom as a native currency for the Cosmos Hub as a security provider is like the currency the obviously people are going to want to use stable coins like that's that's obvious but adam could be like this major pairing of liquidity provider uh pools uh it could be like the major asset people want to use as collateral um it is like the money um and yes the the adam asset can extend far beyond the cosmos hub security rights but i think the fact that like cosmos hub goes from a security first chain to now like a security plus monetary asset with with adam being its major product is like the the maturation of the hub in general so um, we'll see if the narrative plays out or if it actually if it has any legs. So we'll see. Tam, I'm I'm just looking at our uh, game script for this episode again. I just can't find the section where it says effort capital shields cosmos in this one, but appreciate <laughs> it. We all knew it was coming no matter what. <laughs> oh, I guess. No, I love it. I love it. You keep us balanced. Um, we need yeah. that. Facts, facts. All right. So last one on the governance uh, section. I'll make this one quick because we actually missed it. This is from last week, but uh GMX, the core contributors, are requesting 250,000 tokens to be vested over a two-year period to continue funding like themselves to build out the protocol. It's roughly $9 million at current prices. Um, 
and they actually had 250,000 streamed to them over the past two years as well. So honestly, it seems pretty standard. I feel like $9 million over two years is not unreasonable to any degree. So um, we can just leave that one at that. Um, but on to the next section and do let us know in the comments what you think about this. This is a uh, new segment I, alert. <laughs> new segment alert. This is a uh, zero X Pibbles idea. So definitely let us know if you guys have any other section ideas or things you want to hear us talk about in the comments. But um, we've got top movers and uh, top losers of the week. Um, actually, that, those aren't plural either. Those are singular. We just got one of each. But nonetheless, uh, Dan, do you want to do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, for sure, for sure. We'll stop with the uh, start with the top mover upwards, right? So we have Maker down here again. This is the you know the section where we slap NFA DYOR. We're not like we're just making observations here. We're not telling you to go buy things. We're not telling you to sell things. This is just you know we live in a space where we trade or see like everything is liquid in trade so there's interesting observations to be had that's what i'm getting at here maker now been on an absolute ripper there's no doubt about it mkr is up significantly in the past day week month whatever time frame you want uh it's looking good and better than the rest of the market and there's a couple reasons why for that i think but largely it's driven around the refreshed narrative around like hey we're not just these this old you know dino token that isn't going to do anything interesting. There's like other things to be had there. And it's like, they're pushing forward the RWA narrative and what that, not only what that is, but they're like kind of defining what that means for on-chain protocols. And you see Frax kind of going right there with them and doing a very different, uh, not very different, but a meaningfully different approach as well. So it's going to be great to see those two protocols duke it out. Um, but I, I just love the idea of them bringing real world assets on-chain in what seems to be a fairly scalable way. So lots to be learned here, but I think honestly what it boils down for MakerDAO over the last couple days, weeks, and months is refresh narrative around, you know, maybe we're going to end up on a new chain. We're going to have new tokens, not only just a new governance token, but also a new stable coin. Uh, so the refresh narrative, and then of course, our WAs are uh, going to be the premier topic of 2024 at this point. Yeah, I mean, to be more specific, I know, I think it was this past week, there's a proposal to increase like the two biggest RWA vaults, their debt ceilings. So you have Monitalis Clydesdale and Block Tower Andromeda, I think are what they're called, and increasing the debt ceilings from 1.3 billion to 3 billion die. So a big increase. So I think that like could be specifically what's a catalyst at the moment. But yeah, they're, they're definitely benefiting from a general like higher for longer stance from the Fed. In that, like, if we see rates continue to be this high and potentially higher, then they are like the sole beneficiary through these RWA instruments uh, of yield, and that's going back to die holders, and that is accruing to maker in, in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, they're definitely benefiting a lot recently. Dgen Spartan in shambles. <laughs> I do worry a little bit though, because like you know, we saw, and I'm not like a macro guy by any means, but everyone always talks about how the U.S. government kind of like weaponizes its debt, and you know, when it's convenient for them, then they, you know, basically seize the assets that the the other sovereign nation is holding. We saw this with uh, um, the the Russian sanctions. Uh, so I don't know; it just kind of scares me because if Dai grows to be this huge behemoth in our one decentralized quotation you know, around decentralized uh, stablecoin and it's embedded on every chain and every protocol relies on it. And then all of a sudden one day those assets are frozen. That's just like pretty scary. And I mean, I think we got to like realize this isn't a utopian thing and we got to do regulation and like we got to go by the book and we do need real world assets on chain. But 
it definitely makes that uh, threat more of a reality. Yeah, I mean, that'd be rugging the users at the end point, right? Like, if you held the die that was backed by treasuries that got seized, like, yeah. So, I, I don't know. It gets really tough. It's sort of like the same. I mean, it's obviously different. But in some ways, that's like kind of the same concept as, uh, you know, fracks using curve pools to hold their USDC. It's like, all right, if, you know, if you want to rug the entire curve pool, then you can also rug fracks. Uh, it's it's definitely different, but like, you know, they're trying, I don't know. I, I hear you. And I don't know the macro side of things right now at all. So I'm not going to pretend like I do in any way, shape or form to just don't pay any attention there. Uh, I, I trust my boys like Fei Zhao on Twitter to, to tell me when shit's blowing up. And I did recently see that he was like, I'm buying January SPY puts. So maybe, maybe you're on to something here. That's so confusing because I saw him say he was buying TLT. TLT puts. Sorry, I don't. Yeah, no, you're right. All right, see, there we go. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, yeah, and actually though, Jack Farley said number go down. <laughs> we shouted out uh, Fage out over Jack. Come on, man, that's our forward guidance leader. <laughs> that's true. I, I respect them both. Those are that's like literally the only source of macro knowledge I get, and it's just like every now and then I'll hit up Jack. Number up, number down. What are we working with? And of course, <laughs> he's a he's a very straightforward guy. So he's like, hey, I, I don't I don't. Uh, what's his quote uh, I call balls and strikes not winners or something like that it's incredible this also brings the second half of the segment which is the the biggest loser of the week and so uh, here we go here's the stats first and, and then the ticker second 30 day down 79% 14 day down 61% 7 day 48% 24 hour 49.9% uh, that's what happens when you run an exchange and Suzu gets arrested so RIP to Ox token we lost a, another one uh, we're really slaying off the, the formerly heroes, now villains, one by one, and uh, good to see it. So, I don't know. On to the next. I will say when, when Ox was pumping, that was probably the most hated rally I've ever had. Like, seeing that token do well and knowing it was off the back of Suzu and Kyle probably bidding it up themselves, like, it infuriated me that they were, were still free. And another observation is, like, as soon as the Suzu news hit i didn't check the aux price i checked his ft keys price his friend tech keys like which maybe that means that you know that's a good sign for friend tech adoption that that was the first thing i thought about but yeah overall like happy with the news did the keys nuke as well yes if you look at like there's like a, a feed of all the people who buy and sell his keys it's just like sold 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 like yeah it was bad Hyper efficient markets over there in friend tech land. I'm going to be honest. I could see Ox continuing down only, but I could say maybe buying opportunity on Zeus keys. Like that is, that's history right there. <laughs> that's true. It becomes a meme at this point. Yeah. yeah. Can you get a phone in jail? Can he, can he bring uh, the chat, come to the chat live from jail? I don't know. <laughs> he probably sold his keys right while the cops are like knocking on his door. He started like shorting his own shares, his own keys. Using the uh, proceeds to buy ox. <laughs> probably a good time to segue into our final and richest, most famous segment of Hot Seat Cool Throne. Um, Westy, you got an absolute heater that we're just prepared to argue about. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Yeah, let's definitely get into it. So on the hot seat, I have people who say issuance isn't a cost to a network. Dang. Which me, Dan, and, and Effort here have had our share of debates internally as well as our our share of debates on twitter with others but basically like we've come to the conclusion that issuance is certainly a cost 
and I can sort of give my thoughts and let them speak as well. But yeah, I think first of all, I'd say like, it's, this is definitely a complicated thing. Like a lot of different perspectives seem logical um, because like these are complex systems like L1s. Yeah. They're a business that facilitates the creation of blocks, but they're, they're also like basically decentralized central bank, which makes things confusing. That being said, they're definitely wrong. So I think most of the disagreement comes down from a matter of like perspective. Um, so for us, when we talk about issuance being a cost, we look at the perspective of the protocol as a, a cash flowing business or a nonprofit. And we're looking to create like an income statement for it. And in this case, the chain creates revenue through transaction fees, internalize some of those fees in the form of burn or puts it in a treasury somewhere and then sends the rest of those fees and some newly created issuance to the entities responsible for creating or proposing blocks and securing the network. And in this case, issuance is certainly a cost because it'd be the equivalent of a business issuing new shares of equity and using that to pay for the service uh, of the application. And stock-based compensation itself is a non-cash expense on a balance sheet. And this would be the equivalent, right? Um, from like their perspective, I think where they get it wrong is that like what they see is that it isn't a cost because they say it's a closed loop. Nothing ever leaves the system because it's as a token holder, you're able to opt in to receive this issuance. Um, to me, this, this isn't looking at it from the perspective of the chain as like a business or a nonprofit. It's looking through the lens of a token holder. Um, and so as a result, of being a token holder, you're able to opt in to this inflation. But even then, I still think it's wrong in that it's not a closed system. It's it's not like net neutral in that uh, basically uh, this issuance, um, yeah, they need to opt in, but they also need to take on additional slashing risk and they need to pay to run the hardware or pay commission to those that run it. And in most cases become illiquid, right? Um, and so they need to sell that issuance in order to either run the hardware, the hardware themselves or pay those that do, and they need to sell it. And in that case, it actually leaves the system. It's no longer a closed loop. It needs to exit in order to pay hardware along the lines of like validators look at the issuance as income. And as a result, so does the government and they have to pay taxes on the income and as a result, they need to sell it, right? So it's no longer this closed loop system that has to exit the system based on how it works. So to me, to act like it isn't a cost and that it's net neutral is just wrong. And we'd love to open the floor to you guys to hear your opinion as well. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things here. So um, I like how you mentioned that, like using an income statement. On, and like, let's just note that this is like very specific to L1s. I'm not talking about app chains. I'm not talking about L2s. I'm not talking about application layer uh, services that have a token and like use it in a very similar way to like a proof of stake mechanism. I'm literally talking about L1 blockchains, Bitcoin, Solana, Ethereum. Keep it simple. Like this is this is the box we're exploring right now. Um, the second thing is you mentioned that you know we're looking at them as businesses. That is the lens we're taking, and that is not what we're saying blockchains are. Blockchains are not businesses. They are much more than this, and there are many reasons why blockchains are valuable and, like, why the token derives value. And, like, here's, like, a non-exhaustive list, but probably the top four reasons in my mind. It can be, like, a yield-bearing cash flow-generating asset, right? So Ethereum, as a staker, you are earning cash flows. It can be in-demand as a gas token. 
there is much demand to hold ETH to use it to transact on chain and to execute these transactions. You you need the token, so it's like kind of has this commodity value. Uh, uses a medium of exchange within a market like the on-chain economy as a whole, right? So you're going to see it as base pairings for DEXs and used in NFT marketplaces as this like quote asset. Um, and then also it can be like a respective store of value, right? So like kind of like the digital gold narrative that Bitcoin really holds on to and is its prime reason for having value. So it's kind of like these four buckets of what drives value. Using an income statement is like, again, taking this business perspective of a blockchain and really to see how the protocol is using the cash flows that come in the door. And that's transaction fees. In uh, no world is that not a revenue in this, in this view. And so... When it, I guess there's two pieces here. So then you get it like, all right, now we're in this bucket. And if we're comparing Bitcoin and Ethereum, obviously there are uh, two different consensus me mechanisms there, proof of work, proof of stake. And Wesley talked briefly about the, you know, how proof of stake is different a little bit, but I want to hit that again. So in a proof of work X system, you're paying an external third party and miners to control the network and operate it. And yes, as Wesley mentioned, that is an expense. It is leaving the system very clearly. Uh, and again, the stock-based stock -based comp uh, comparison in traditional markets makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it's, it's a, it hits the income statement. It is an expense, just plain and simple. Uh, proof of stake is just where the debate is, right? And again, the closed well, loop some system. Some people the proof of work was also not an expense, as we had the whole conversation on Twitter two days ago, which that person was completely wrong, but that's besides the point. Keep going. Sorry. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I just don't... That that That's... Delusion. That's that's the word I'll use. Delusion. Yeah. And but the proof of, proof of stake argument, like I hear it. it there, there actually, I think there's something there. I just I can't wrap my head around why that makes more sense personally. And like I've spent, I think we've probably spent hundreds of hours from this ever since the day the John Sharp piece came out on it. I, I actually flipped. I was like, this makes so much sense. Like I am all in on this idea. I I was a believer, and I remember yelling at you, effort. We were like, you're an idiot. This is so wrong. Uh, and now, like, again, after spending literally hundreds of hours thinking about this, I know it's it's not the better way to think about it. I think it is the better way to think about it in a perfectly rational world where 100 percent of the token is staked and validators run their equipment for free and there's no taxes. And it's like in this perfect box, I get it. But that is not Earth. And that is not any of the systems that we see today. And you can't even have a proof of stake chain have 100% stake. That, that It wouldn't work. How do you pay gas? So, yes, I, I, I think it's both, to be completely honest. I think it is a cost to the network and it is a value transfer from holders to stakers. Like, I, I, that is, it's, see, like, depending on which angle you want to come from, like, it's both things. But to say it is not inflation isn't a cost to the token is is absolutely insane right so i'm a validator i sell my tokens they hit the open market which is generally a quite thin liquidity book and that has an outsized impact on the token price we've even seen uh protocols that like massively increase their inflation when not a lot of their tokens token staked or even 70 80 percent of their token staked and still has outside of impacts like people price this stuff in and Everything in the Cosmos ecosystem. Inflation is a pernicious cost, as Paulinia has said before. We'll link the post I'm talking about in the show notes. But I just think it's you're you're doing mental gymnastics to try to say this isn't a cost to the network or there isn't revenues being generated by the network. Yes, there is. Fees come in the door. We'll use ETH as the example here. So fees come in the door in the form of transaction fees. 
Um, and let's say, let's ignore MEV boost for now. So uh, the only thing is the only revenue is transaction fees. I have two types of fees that get split out by the protocol, base fee, priority fee, priority fees flow straight to the validators. That is like coming out as a cost of goods sold or production cost. And then you kind of have like this, uh, gross profit line item. If you're familiar with like an income statement, then you also have this additional operating expense called ETH issuance, and you have to pay this out to operate the network. And ultimately, if you like really boil this calculation down, you're, you're basically taking burn minus like base fee burn minus issuance, um, which I don't think like jumping to the end, end result there makes a ton of sense. But breaking it down like this, I think it does. And what you arrive at is this uh, essentially this net change in, in inflation or deflation. And I think the biggest this is the part I really want to drive home. I know I went on a long rant here, but. Just be, like, again, we, we listed out those four reasons why blockchains are valuable. One of them is being a yield bearing asset or having the, like looking at it from a business lens. And in TradFi, if you have an unprofitable business, you're doomed. There is no like way out of that. Now, like the Ubers of the world might argue with you and there, you know, there might be some like tech giants that want to just lose money forever. But the reality is you can't. You can't lose money forever. With a blockchain, that's not true. You can be, as a token holder, you could be A-OK with eating 1%, 2%, 3% inflation if some of those other reasons on why blockchains are valuable are like hammering home. Just look at Bitcoin. It's a great example of this. So the, the long-winded way of getting to the end conclusion here is a net profitable, a net unprofitable blockchain does not guarantee unsustainability. And using an income statement is a phenomenal way to understand how funds flow through an ecosystem. That's it. I'm not saying you should take a, an income statement and plug it into a DCF. You're going to get a ridiculous number because there's more reasons for a blockchain to be valuable. End rant. Yeah, I think if you just, not to like belabor the point too much, but if you assume that inflation is not an expense and you actually start looking about like the, at the value flow or the, uh, from a protocol lens of like how inflation uh, goes to token holders and non-token holders and you... Like you can literally look at it and be like, oh, Cardano and the Cosmos Hub are like they're doing fine. Like they're they're just as like economically sustainable as like Ethereum. It's like no, that's clearly not the case. Like looking at fees is like a direct function of the on-chain uh, activity that's happening on in that given ecosystem. Issuance is again like if ever, if 100% people were staked to the network, the question everyone needs to ask themselves is like if everyone's 100% staked and everyone would continue staking their rewards, do you need to continue issuing new uh, new tokens? Like, why? And people will be like, well, no, like, I guess you don't have to continue issuing new tokens because everyone's staked. Uh, and now if you don't continue issuing new tokens, people are going to unstake. And it's like, well, why would they unstake? It's like, because they're getting paid to secure your network because ultimately a chain and a layer one is paying to for secure block space it is absolutely a cost. And people would go like, no, inflation is not a cost on anyone. It's like, okay, tell all that to the people of Argentina, Lebanon, all the hyperinflationary currencies that are out there. Like there's a direct or an indirect cost. Maybe it's not like, obvious where the costs are but like there are costs of inflation uh and just because we've historically not looked at like inflation as, a, as an expense on government balance sheets but maybe we should like maybe history has shown like we should be looking at this maybe we should be running uh, governments like businesses to a certain degree um so I, I think a lot of people in this space like to like act like they're thought leaders or like they're creating a new paradigm like yes i do believe like crypto is a new paradigm to a certain degree in certain aspects but like that doesn't mean we need to reinvent the wheel like for every single thing out there like sometimes like it does make sense to leverage best practices that we've gathered as a human like society over the past like couple hundred years on how to like look at like certain profit generating entities and like what is a sustainable business model and what's not.
Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's just like, again, this is just a tool to understand what makes a blockchain tick. Nobody is saying, go plug this into a DCF. I, that That's ridiculous. Um, and I, I shout out to John Charb on the very first piece, or not the very first, but really popularizing this topic of like, I think his piece was titled, ETH is not ultrasound money. Like that was the thought thought provoking piece for me that was like, all right, there's this is this is a, a debate worth having, and he battled it out on Twitter. And the second you know we started tweeting about it, the same thing happened. Like people get people get excited to talk about this stuff, and it's because it's a really interesting topic of like how do you value a blockchain? And like, all right, well maybe you can't just like you know slap it into a DCF. So are there any ways to just like glean some insights about how the protocol? operates like that's all it is and if you look at the transition of ethereum from its proof of work days to uh, adding eip 1559 and creating the burn versus the priority fee uh and then lastly the transition to the merge you see meaningful changes in the when looking at a, a block space profitability income statement and that says a lot about the network and the changes it's undergone and now that it's like this more sustainable form of money like it, it all adds up to me. I, I just really struggle to see when you're like, no, 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 closed loop system. We've created this new paradigm and you just don't understand it. It's like, okay, like there's been thousands of years of analysis. Like I think we can lean on some of the backbone that this world has created. Yeah, no model is going to be perfect, but it at least tells you something, right? And gives you a perspective. And for us, that's why we include block space profitability as well as value flow to give you different perspectives into like, okay, if we treat the chain like a business, here's how you would see it, here's how you would analyze it. But also if you were to take a look at, here are the different token holders or different subsets of token holders, how much value they accrue or how much value they're getting diluted. You can make a decision whether you wanna hold this token, stake this token. Like it just gives you different perspectives and each is gonna give you a different insight. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think that that ends this conversation. Yeah, I didn't even say a word because like the argument against it is just so dumb in my opinion. So I feel like even going as deep as we did is not that necessary. But we got very hyped up about this on Twitter over the past week. So we need I to get, get we need to get. I'm sorry, this this your show. My aggression for talking about this, but I just like <laughs> I want somebody to come on here and just be like, no, here's why you guys are dumb, and like this is why it's. This is why it's being a closed loop system exclusively makes it not an expense because all of the uh, explanations I see, they just like explain everything around it. But it's but not like, a closed loop system. Can't get the last piece to hammer, like hammer the nail in. It's like, uh, yes, I get that uh, like token holders can opt into earning it, but that doesn't like make it not an expense. That means it's an expense to only some people. It's not a closed loop system. That's literally what it is. You can't just assume people are going to continue restaking their issuance and they're never going to sell it. Like, get out of here with that. That is absolute like baloney. I'm with you guys. <laughs> get us out of here. All right, yeah. all right. I'll take a cool <laughs> turn here. Uh, Coinbase launching retail perps to non-US customers. I think that is absolutely huge news. Um, we were talking about this the other day. We really don't know the numbers in terms of perps volume on Binance for sure, but Gotta guess it's between five and six billion dollars a day. Getting two bips on that. I have no idea off the top of my head what that is, but you'd think that's five, ten, twenty million dollars a day, somewhere around there. Um, I think this is huge. If if Coinbase can even even steal like five percent market share, that makes a very material impact to um how much money they actually make. Um both I think top that's five and volume, five to six billion. I think 
perps is like 25 to 30 billion. I think it's like five to six X spot right now, approximately. Okay. Well, anyways, that re-solidifies the point. I think this is pretty huge for, for Coinbase as a company and, you know, effort. I know you're going to love to hear that. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like you love to see it, right? Like uh, as the top dog in the space is, getting their hand slapped and potential like DOJ and like other government action being against them because of whether or not they act in nefarious over, you know, historically, I'm not one to pontificate on that, but I mean, you're seeing them using Binance kind of uh, slowly lose market share. Um, OKX and Bybit have honestly picked up a decent amount of it, but I think at the same time you're seeing the the top dog in the space, at least from an international perspective, uh, start, start potentially fading into a, a relevance, kind of like BitMEX 2018-2019 era before the next bull run. You're seeing Coinbase kind of launch its international expansion plan. They just, like this retail per- product think it's going to be huge. Um, sadly, U.S. residents are not allowed. Thanks, Gary, for that. Really appreciate the protection. Um, but I mean, it's it's a great story for Coinbase. I think their international expansion is going to make or break them outside of U.S. regulation. Obviously, it's going to be a big like shadow that hangs over the entire crypto industry. But I think that if Coinbase can execute on its international strategy, like they, they could, again, be like a, a really big kingmaker of the next cycle. And they potentially could be like the, the crypto related asset to hold outside of like specific um, crypto, crypto assets themselves. Yeah, strong agree there. Uh, I, I think this is perfect timing. Um, and not only because of, you know, Binance's regulatory problems, but the reputation as well, where like we see threads, I feel like every week of people calling Binance and Hobie insolvent and like shady and like their reputation around the globe is dropping as Coinbase is like getting into this market. So I, I think it's just great timing. And like you said, like expanding internationally, how well they've done in the U.S., like I can imagine they do well elsewhere. You can also see like I can think how inefficient or how much Wall Street doesn't understand Coinbase as a business. Because when this news was announced, I want to say it was announced like nine o'clock in the morning, give or take 15 minutes or so. um, Market opened up like one and a half percent up coin. And we were talking about it on our morning call. And I was like, I can't believe the market's not thinking that this is like a bigger deal for Coinbase, knowing like how knowing us knowing like how large of a market perps is compared to spot and Coinbase historically been a spot platform and institutions obviously are, are, are I think, a big catalyst for, for perps adoption over time. But I think right now, like it's mostly a retail product. Um, and we saw like what Robin Hood's like uh, UI did for like retail adoption of options, right? Like in, in TradFi market instruments. So I think. It, it was crazy. Like the first hour or so Coinbase was up like one and a half percent. And I was like, this makes no sense. Like, how is this possible? This is an inefficient market. I should have known. I should have probably bought more coin. I didn't. And then all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. It was up like seven and a half percent, like a couple hours later. Uh, I think it ended up closing like, I don't know, four and a half or five percent a little bit up. So, but it had a really good pop yesterday. But I think that just goes to show like Wall Street is not looking. They have no idea. They don't understand like what this means for not just the industry as a whole, having like a mature name in the space and like a well-trusted brand in the space launch a purpose product for retail but I, I just don't think they understand like coinbase's market position in general and they don't understand like what perps can do for coinbase's top line and bottom line revenue revenue over time something interesting i noticed just logging the coinbase app the other day actually too was the uh, usdc deposit program you can get five percent apy just by holding it there i didn't even know that was a thing actually and i had money in there it was only like a hundred bucks. And over the last like two and a half years that that hundred bucks was just sitting there, I made $10. I'm like, that is so much better than your bank account. It is ridiculous. And that goes to show that Coinbase is looking to scale this to like hundreds of millions of people. And they think, 
you know, that grows the pie. So they're okay just making that one or 2% spread as opposed to stealing all of that interest that they're earning on the underlying um, away from the user. So I don't know. I just thought that was super cool. Yeah, I do find that interesting because you're right. Like, you know, that yield is powered by treasuries. Uh, but so they're like willing to return it to holders through the Coinbase app. But like, why not just have like a SUSDC where you could have this like uh, natively accruing, you know, US, like the, the SDI version of USDC that just earns the yield as the token. Like that would be pretty interesting. Uh, but I mean, I get why they want to keep it on platform, right? They have they, they have their own incentives there to keep uh, on platform USDC accruing more value to Coinbase, the company as well. But I don't know, pretty interesting. Yeah, post uh, Circle Stake 50-50 um, partnership or whatever it is, um, I'm pretty sure they get 50% of revenue on all USDC. So I don't even think it matters that it's on their platform now, which I was like trying to make sense of that in my head. I mean, maybe they just haven't changed it yet. <laughs> um, not really sure, but <laughs> nonetheless. No, I mean, I think, yeah, there's still value in like, People depositing money, I'm, yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, people, people will deposit new capital coming for that 5%. True, true. But uh, Dan, do you have a hot seat or cool throne lined up? Yeah, I got a, uh, I got a cool throne for the old dog, Thorchain, baby. Uh, we've had a couple of episodes with Chad Barraford, one of the lead developers over there, and he's uh, kind of come on to talk about first time was to talk about savers uh, and that's doing quite well it's got about 25 million in tvl specifically in savers earning some pretty solid yields on native tokens and that includes bitcoin which is very hard to get native yield on actually borderline impossible uh and then more recently you know we've also had him on to discuss the lending protocol which is a little bit of a weird word for it it's not exactly a lending protocol but at the end of the day the users deposit assets and get uh, a stable coin back we've seen about uh one million dollars in borrow demand thus far and that is a burnt equivalent of about a million in rune um and so you're seeing good traction there strong protocol building new primitives getting continued adoption it's hard not to be excited about that yep i'm a big fan of uh Thorchain and what they're doing i mean native asset swaps is something we need especially if we want you know truly decentralized finance um so rooting for those guys over there for sure. I know they've had like a really long journey to get to where they are today. Yeah, that's a great point. The swap volume is absolutely up only over the last couple. Honestly, since lending has launched, it's just been continued continued growth in, in swap volume as well. All right. I think that is a good place to stop it. Uh, Effort Capital's computer is at 2% and Westy has a voice uh, that is currently hurting. So we will put them out of their pain. Uh, thanks for coming on, guys. It's always a lot of fun. We'll be sure to do this again next week.